0: Amen. Hey, would you take your Bible, go to Jeremiah chapter number 17, and uh, the last few Sunday nights have been turning a lot in our Bible, and uh, tonight will be no different from that. I do want to try to give you a heads up as much as I can uh, to get to the passages. Uh, Tonight, we're going to pray in just a second. We'll pray before we read any scripture, uh, but Jeremiah 17 is where we're going to start. Tonight, I'm going to be revisiting one of my absolute favorite topics. It's a topic I think that needs to be in front of God's people all the time, and that is the topic of decision making. And uh, every one of us make countless decisions on a daily basis. And uh, you might remember, I preached a series not long ago on the anatomy of a good decision, and we spent a couple weeks unpacking how to make good decisions. And uh, we are not revisiting that particular topic we're really going to be looking at the decision-making. Uh, I want you to think about it almost like a war room, like a, uh, there's a sacred place inside of your heart that you and I make decisions. And uh, I want to talk to you tonight about guarding that area, uh, guarding your heart and making good decisions and really the influences that are on the outside of you that try to get in to make bad decisions for you and with you. And uh, so really, uh, we've talked in the past about how to make good decisions. We, we talked about counsel and we talked about prayer and uh, we talked about searching scripture and we're not going to revisit that. Uh, we are going to However, like I said, revisit the idea of guarding the decision-making process against external influences that try to interrupt and try to break into that real sacred place uh, where you as a mom or you as a dad or you as a teenager make uh, really important decisions. And uh, so we're going to talk about how we can guard that. But let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll start our reading and study. And like I said, we will going to be in a bunch of different places tonight. And so uh, be with me if you can, and I'll try to be slow for you. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I ask you and I invite you, Lord, to use this sermon. And uh, this is something I believe, God, you've given me. I've been working on this thought for a couple of weeks now. I even alluded to it in a sermon a while ago about your worthiness. And uh, so I pray, God, tonight that uh, you'd be pleased uh, by these things. I pray that you would help us, God, to be on guard and to pay attention. And, and uh, Father, to, to make certain that we are uh, watching and vigilant and sober and so forth when it comes to decisions that we make. And, uh, Lord, I pray that you would be honored in what we do decide to do and what we don't decide to do. I pray, Father, that we would take each and every decision seriously under Understanding the long term uh, and even short term ramifications of our decisions. And uh, God, that we would be a wise people, and uh, Father, that we would follow your spirit. And even in the small areas, as we steward little things, you can give us and entrust us with even bigger things. So, Lord, bless us, we pray this evening. May this service bring you glory in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I've said this countless times. I'll say it one more time tonight. Your life and my life is the sum total of our decisions. And uh, your life is not the sum total of external circumstances uh, or things outside of your control. And uh, I know we live in a culture that tries to perpetrate that idea that, well, you're where you are because someone didn't love you enough or you weren't given enough or you weren't cared about enough or someone forgot something in your life. Uh, That is simply just not what the Bible says. The Bible is very clear in that we make our own decisions and that we are accountable for the decisions that we make. And uh, the place that you and I stand today in our life, whether we like it or we don't, I'm talking about the situation we find ourselves in, if you look around at your life and you say, man, I love the life I've got, You can look back and say, by the grace of God, I made the decisions that brought me here. Uh, If you look around at your life and say, man, I wish everything were different. Well, you can look around at the decisions of your life and say, man, I made bad decisions. And uh, you cannot blame it on your mom. You cannot blame it on a pastor. You cannot blame it on a Sunday school teacher or your spouse. Uh, and I know that in some respects, you are, uh, you are one flesh together. So your decisions ultimately do reciprocate back and forth over uh, each other. However, you are in the position you and I are in because of our decisions. And uh, like I said, I love teaching on the topic. I think it's super important. Uh, I think we ought to go back and evaluate how we make decisions constantly. It is, like I said, one of those things I think I preach on a lot, I still feel like I don't preach on it enough. I feel like it's one of those things that should be in front of God's people a lot. Um, Excuse me. And that is because, again, life and the situation that we're in is not because of some accident or something we couldn't control, but rather decisions that we make. And so tonight, I want to revisit that topic of how to make a decision, but from a bit of a different perspective. Uh, We're going to be looking at those external circumstances or those external forces Those outside influences that try to make its way into our decision making process. Um, Now, because they do exist. Now, again, they don't absolve you from responsibility. You can't say, well, you know, brother so and so influenced me. Sure, they may very well have. And there are some people and some things that influence your decision, some for good and some for bad. We'll spend our time looking at the bad. Uh, but that ultimately doesn't change who's accountable for their decision. Someone may have influenced you, and so you may have listened to someone's bad counsel. You may have gone to a friend and gotten their advice and taken their advice to the T, and it was the wrong decision, and you can't blame your friend. You were the one who made the decision. Um, but those things do exist. Those circumstances from the outside do kind of try to come into the inside. And so I told the fellows in the back the, the title of the sermon tonight, Things that try to govern our decision-making process. Now, that's a long title to type into Facebook and Livestream, uh, but understand that's where we're going. The things on the outside that try to make their way to the inside to help make those decisions. And like I said, some of those influences are good and God-designed. Um, you children have parents who are supposed to help get into that decision-making process, right? Uh, you spouses have your wife or your husband that's supposed to be on the inside of that decision-making process. But uh, there are some things that try to make their way into that decision room that war against the soul. There are some things that try to get into that decision-making process that exalt themselves against God and should be brought into captivity rather than given a seat at the table of decision-making. And so we're gonna spend our time chasing down those things, like I said, that war against our soul. Those things that try to break into our decision-making process and try to get us to make a bad decision. Now, I've reduced them, and I'm just gonna give them to you on the front end of the sermon tonight. I've reduced them to three primary enemies, sources. I wouldn't maybe, some of them are certainly enemies, but uh, some of these don't necessarily always equal enemy, but you need to guard them anyway. So there are three areas that try to get into your decision-making process uh, that we're going to look at tonight. Number one, your heart. Number two, other men. And number three, the enemy of your soul, Satan. Each one of those influences are a threat to properly made decisions. And so my hope tonight is not to give you something new. You probably all recognize all three of those. Uh, So my, my hope is not to give you something you've never heard before but rather to call you back to attention, to call you back to sobriety and vigilance, knowing that all influences around you are not all good influences around you. All influences that call for your attention and a seat at the table of decision-making are not good uh, influences and shouldn't be present in your life. And so uh, because we have adversaries that war against our soul, that want to pollute our decisions, uh, and those decisions are the sum total of our life, we need to guard the influences that come in to help make those decisions. So, my hope is simply this uh, to get to bring you to a position where you reevaluate who gets a seat at the table when you're making a decision. And who is, is a bit of a, a personification? It's, a, uh, uh, I, I don't, it's not necessarily going to be a person all of the time. Sometimes it's your own heart. Uh, sometimes it is a person, and sometimes it's the person of Satan. And so, we're going to lean into each of these characters uh, and get some sub points. I don't often have sub points, so be ready for that. I gave you my three primary points, but we're going to get into some sub points, starting number one with how in the world does your heart uh, influence and decide to govern or try to govern, I should say your decision-making process. Uh, The heart is considered in our culture and and oftentimes in the Bible to be the seat of our emotions. And so I'm not actually thinking about your your blood pumping vessel. I think you recognize that. I'm talking about your seat of emotions. I'm talking about that kind of inner emotional capacity and so forth. Uh, There are a few biblical ways listed where our heart tries to govern us. And your mind probably goes to the first one that my mind goes to. And that is in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse number nine. It's a famous passage and it's a great start and a great warning for us to take heed to as we launch out of this gate and uh, try to examine the influences in our decision-making. Look at Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse number 9. It says, and you probably could quote it even if you didn't get there, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately, who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. So number one, how can our heart try to creep in and try to break into the decision-making process and try to pollute uh, our decisions? Whereas maybe without this this uh, this enemy coming in, you and I can make a good decision. Our heart tries to break in, number one, uh, simply by uh, causing us to uh, or, or deceiving us bringing in that deceit and bringing in those lies uh, into, into our decision-making. Think about this. A lie is simply a misrepresentation of truth. Uh, it's a skewed fact. Uh, It's an exaggerated reality. It's a deleting or omission of facts. It's an altering of the fabric of the situation so as to present it in a different light. And our heart does that, does it not? Maybe yours doesn't. Mine certainly does that. When I'm facing a spiritual decision, man, my heart gets in there and starts to exalt itself against God and lie about his ability. And and God's not going to take care of you. And God didn't call you to this. And think about all the different characters that we just read about in Hebrews chapter number 11, where they're setting out to build a boat or they're setting out to sacrifice their son and no out, their heart started to deceive them. Uh, Eve in the garden, right? Her heart, when she saw the fruit was good to look upon, her heart began to deceive her and lie about different things. And so sometimes our heart makes up facts. Sometimes our heart mi- misrepresents the truth. Sometimes in a situation where, man, somebody might have offended us, our heart will exaggerate that offense. Our heart will whisper in our ear and say, hey, you know why they said that. You know why they gave you that look. You, you know what they said. And, and the fact is, you, you can't know those things, but your heart will lie to you. And your heart will try to get a seat at that table of decisions and try to mess everything up, either by, again, twisting the truth or just flatly making up uncorroborated facts. The heart lies to us. And as it sits at that table and misrepresents the facts, as you're getting ready to make a decision to step out of ministry or walk away from church or burn that bridge with that person, your heart is sitting at the table whispering in your ear all manner of absolute lies, trying to get you to make a hasty decision. And you and I need to guard our decision-making process from our heart. And be careful, Christian, your heart is not your friend uh, in, in most decision making uh, processes because it is a notorious liar. Uh, nobody would take the uh, advice of, of someone who has proven themselves time and time and time and time and time again uh, to be a liar. And yet we will take the advice of our own heart all of the time, even though much of the time it is lying to us. And so your heart tries to govern your decision making process through, the, through the, the act of deceit. I want you to notice, secondly, would you go to James chapter number one? James chapter number one, how else does our heart try to get in and mess up our decisions? Well, through unbiblical desires. You ever heard the phrase, the heart wants what the heart wants? Sometimes the heart wants something it shouldn't want, right? And I know that's true. Sometimes my heart, it's prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, right? Your heart wanting something does not equate to that's what you should have. Uh, your heart is, has all kinds of unbiblical desires birthed inside of it. Uh, James chapter 1, verse number 14 says this, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. That word enticed means this, baited or lured away through a desire. It says, Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. Do not Error, my beloved brethren, don't listen to the desires of your heart. Don't allow your desires to govern your decisions. Listen to this quote. When your heart wants something for you that God doesn't, that's called temptation. When your heart looks at something and says, yeah, but I want it. And God says, no, you don't. That's when we're standing there being tempted. And we learned last week that no man can say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God because God can tempt no man. But we're drawn away of our own lusts and entice. We, we're baited and we're, we're lured by the enticement and desire of our own heart. And listen, I challenge you as James does, do not err, my beloved brethren. Do not allow your desires to cause you to make a bad decision. Uh, we've all wanted things that God didn't have in the, in the plan for us. We want this house, we want this process, or we want to live over here, or we want to be able to have that possession or want to have that relationship. And God just says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. You don't get to have that thing maybe even just yet. Uh, But what happens oftentimes is we we let our hearts sit at the table And he ends up being the loudest person in that conversation. And then all of a sudden, we end up on the wrong side of a decision. And uh, we've signed a contract or we've we've already got the moving truck and we've got all these things done and taken care of. uh, And we've ended up on the wrong side of the the situation, the decision. Uh, And listen, I think it's important that we, we pay attention to the desires of our heart with a highly skeptical heart or with a highly skeptical uh, ear. Uh, listen, there's an antidote right here in this passage. In fact, if you look at the very next verse, James gives us the antidote, right? So on one hand, he says, hey, your heart's gonna draw you away. There's all these desires, uh, but don't err, my beloved brethren. Rather, every good gift and every perfect gift cometh uh, is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variable, neither, uh, uh, neither shadow of turning. And so James says, listen, hey, your heart might want all manner of things, but realize that God is going to give you what you're supposed to have. Those good and perfect gifts, he's going to make sure they come to you. They're coming down from him. You don't need to chase the desires of your heart. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things are going to be, they're going to take care of themselves. You just follow Jesus and not the desires of your heart. So there's three things, again, that, that, that break into our decision-making process. We're looking, number one, at our heart. How does our heart cause us to make bad decisions? Number one, through just flat deceit. Number two, through wrong desires. Number three, would you go to Proverbs chapter number three, and uh, we'll look at verse five and six. Proverbs chapter number three. I love this one. It's so important We pay attention to it. Number three, how else does our heart cause us to make bad decisions? Our heart can try and govern us incorrectly by using our own understanding our own understanding. And you all know this verse, and there's no doubt about it. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not into thine own understanding. In all thy ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct thy path. So you're sitting at this war room table of decision-making, and you and I, listen, we've all lived in this life, right? We've all walked through something, whether you're 15 or 51. We've all walked through circumstances. We've all got some kind of weather under our, our belt. We've all experienced some battles. We all kind of have some level of intuition. We all kind of have some way of being able to read character and trustworthiness and all of those things. But when you approach a situation and the decision like they did, the children of Israel did to Ai, didn't ask just, hey, we are gonna. We understand, we know how to win this battle. We didn't consult the Lord whether we should even do it or not. We're going after it. And we end up in the same place that, I, that the children of Israel did. Broken, scarred, and bruised. Listen, pride is the root of a poor decision. Because when we trust our instincts or we trust our God or we go with our response. Now, again, we've all lived some amount of time on this earth and we all have our own fair share of situations and disappointment. We've all been treated poorly by other people. But what happens is, We end up being the living example of this phrase. Well, you fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And because of our own understanding, we isolate ourselves from people and we just automatically assume people are awful. And we end up living with mottos that, you know, like, I'm never going to let anybody take advantage of me again. I'm never going to put myself in that position again. And we justify a calloused heart because we're leaning on our own understandings. Now, I know how people are at church. I know how those people are. I know what's going to happen here. And we haven't given God a single chance to influence that decision or that spirit. We've decided to have that spirit. We've decided to wall everybody off. And we haven't given God a chance. Rather, we've leaned on our own understanding. And that's a bad place to be. Now, again, I'm not suggesting you have no intuition, right? Some people have great intuition. I'm not, I'm not suggesting you're a bad judge of character. But what I am saying to you is that your heart is a terrible arbitrator of truth. Your heart is absolutely garbage at determining good and evil for itself, just like Adam and Eve's was terrible at determining good and evil for itself. Uh, His ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. Therefore, we have to give him the right of way in this decision-making process and not our own understanding. Well, I got this figured out. I've done this before. I've made this decision. I've, I've preached a sermon before. I don't need to worry about studying for Sunday school. I'm good. What a terrible place to be. We'll revisit this verse later on in the text, but, or later on in the sermon tonight. But Proverbs 16 25, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And we spent, and I'm not gonna preach on that again, I think in September I, I, I nailed that verse as, as much as I could, the idea uh, that, that Christians get tangled up not on what seems bad, but what seems good. They say, well, it's fair. This is a reasonable decision. This is a reasonable reaction toward that person. Uh, This is a reasonable decision to make without prayer, without counsel, without any, you know, biblical search. It's just going to make this decision. And it seems right, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And we need to be extremely careful that we do not follow the deceit of our heart, that we do not follow the desires of our heart, that we do not lean on our own understanding. And lastly, as it relates to our hearts, our hearts can lead us astray in the decision-making through condemnation. This is really, this I want you kind of pers- to personify uh, condemnation for me. you're sitting at the table and man, God's calling you to, to something and man, your heart begins to condemn you. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I've certainly experienced that. Where God's calling me to do something that's scary. God's calling me to do something that's difficult. God's calling me out, out of some comfort zone. And man, my heart starts to tell me you can't do it. There is no way. And your heart begins to condemn you. Go to 1 John chapter three. Now, if you've got a ribbon and you're gonna leave it anywhere, leave it in 1 John. We're gonna be back there probably three or four more times. I know for sure at least three more times in our study tonight. But our heart can condemn us. Sometimes our heart tells us we're not worthy to do the things God calls us to. We're getting ready to launch out into missions. I said yesterday in our meeting, um, Paul and Silas they uh, Paul and Barnabas rather Paul and Barnabas sailed to Cyprus which was about the same distance from Bakersfield to Tehachapi. And they would end up traveling tens of thousands of miles. One one person put it at the distance, and I don't know exactly the number, but basically if you walk from LA to New York four times, that's the, the amount of travel Paul did in his missionary journeys. But before he went to the end of the globe, he went to the end of his county. And he just, just went beyond that. And so we're getting ready to go beyond to the uttermost, Lord willing. And sometimes our heart can condemn us and say, well, you can't do that. You've never done that. That's a scary... Oftentimes, my heart's done that. in this whole process, just to be honest with you, it's been a scary process trying to, to, to even get my own heart into global evangelization and global missions and lead our church in that direction, and let alone, are they going to follow or are they going to do it? And, and you guys have been so great in that, but our heart can condemn us. Look what First John chapter 3, verse 20 says, For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. So your heart and my heart, when it comes to decision-making process, oftentimes is going to try to get us just to not make a decision. Hey, you can't do this. You shouldn't try that. But listen, what he's telling us here in 1 John chapter 3 is that we can rest in knowing that God knows the details, that God knows who he called. God knows who we were when he called us and he is greater than our heart. And our heart might be right. You might be backward and you might be shy and you might not have the money to do that, but God knows the details. And if he's calling you to it, then you ought to step out and make that decision and not listen to the condemnation of your own heart. Listen, very seldom in scripture, and I can only think of one instance, and you might know more than I do in in this, you might be able to think of another instance, but uh, very seldom in scripture is the decision of the heart the right decision. Very seldom. I can think of Jonathan when his armor-bearer said, "Do all that is in my heart. I'm with you." I can't think of too many other instances. Honestly, I can't think of any right now where someone says, "Hey, I'm doing it according to my heart." I know that David tried to do it and he had a good heart, but God didn't let him. But oftentimes our desires do not match scripture or what God has called us to do. So when it comes to a seat at the table, a decision-making process, your heart, it's gonna be there. There's no way to lock it out, but you ought to put it in its place. You ought to recognize that it shouldn't be able to deceive you. It shouldn't be able to lie and fabricate situations. Uh, it shouldn't be able to, to create desires that God doesn't have for you. It shouldn't create an, your confident own understanding, and it shouldn't be able to condemn you. Uh, uh, you ought to be able to make decisions apart from that. So we talked about the three things that, that, that can come in and break into our decision-making process. We said, number one, our own hearts. Number two, the will of others. Um, uh, we, we've talked about this a lot too in the past about counsel. And counsel is important. Counsel's on the lower end of, of decision-making process. Um, you know, some people think, well, you got to go to a spiritual leader before you can buy a car or anything That's that's not in the Bible. Uh, the Holy Spirit's going to guide you. You've got the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God inside you. You should be able to make those decisions uh, uh, for the most part. But counsel is a safe thing, right? In the multitude of counselors, there is safety. So sometimes God does want people influencing you in your decisions. But sometimes God doesn't want certain characters influencing us in our decisions. We're going to look at a handful of those. Um, Proverbs chapter 29. Well, let me have you go to 2 Peter. I'll go to Proverbs 29. You go to 2 Peter chapter number 2. That'll give you a chance to get there. 2 Peter chapter 2 is where you're headed. I'm going to go to Proverbs 29. If you want to write the reference down, you're welcome to do that. But the will of others, people influencing our decision-making process, is something we need to pay attention to carefully. The the book of Proverbs 20, uh, chapter 29, verse 25, says this. The fear of man bringeth a snare. But whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Now, like I said, there are instances where God has put people in your life to help you make decisions, a husband, a wife, a mom, a pastor, some things like that. So not all external influences and decisions are bad decisions, but many times Satan will use wicked people, false teachers, false prophets, uh, wolves in sheep's clothing, some of those you'll see in a moment, to bring you into subjection to them under their fear, under their power, so as to control your decision. And you and I have got to be very careful to that. Some in the room are more predisposed to follow ship in that regard. Um, you you might have a a more follower uh, tendency in you where, you know, if someone has a strong personality, whether they're right or wrong, you're just kind of intimidated by them so you come under them. You've got to pay a special attention to that. Uh, And if you're on the opposite side of the spectrum and, man, you don't follow nobody, you've got to pay special attention to that too. You might blow right past the godly influence he was supposed to have in your life. And so we've got to be really careful, especially when it comes to other people having a seat at the table of decision-making. Like I said, some should. We're going to take a look tonight at those who shouldn't. Um, let's see on the biblical list of some of those who shouldn't be on that list or at that table are, number one, you're going to find it in Second Peter, men with oppressive desires, men who simply just want to put you under their thumb and under their rule. Second Peter tells us of men with such motives. Second 2 Peter 2.18 says... For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through lusts of flesh, through much wantonness. uh, Those that were clean escaped were just escaped from them who live in error. So he's saying, hey, there are going to be false teachers in the church. There's going to be these men who, they're going to use different methods and wantonness and greed and so forth. And they're going to come in and these people who were just saved and just brought out of bondage, they're going to try to bring them back under bondage, under their bondage. Notice what it says in verse 19. While they promised them liberty... They themselves are servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought in bondage. And so for one reason or another, the scripture does explain exactly what. This is serving themselves. But these men desire to control these brand new Simple, young in the faith believers, uh, and these people still exist today. It wasn't just in Peter's day; it's in our day today. They still exist, trying to prey on simple minds and going after new converts and bringing them under their yoke and into their circle, under their control and under their power. They, uh, uh, those that they convert, are expected to think like them and agree with them and side with them and hate who they hate and hate what they hate and come under the umbrella of their authority. And again, so many times, if you want to learn about what to do with bondage, just read the book of Galatians. Time and time again, Paul's dealing with the church. It's being brought under the, the Judaism bondage. He says, no, 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 no. You were set free. You're supposed to walk under the spirit. And yet being brought under bondage is a common theme throughout the New Testament. And Christians should be mindful of people like this and protect their decision-making process from those people because there are some people, and maybe not in this church, and maybe not very often, but you do need to protect yourself from those who simply just want to control the decisions that you make Uh, because, again, you're at liberty. You're set at liberty. Nobody should be bringing you back under bondage. Um, The next one is is a very important one, and I want us to pay close attention to this. Go over to Colossians chapter number 2. Please go with me if you would. What other kind of men try to govern our decision making process? Well, we talked about men who are just, they're oppressive. They want to bring you under fear. They want to bring you under bondage. And those people do exist, though uh, you probably won't run into them as often. Um, but Colossians chapter 2, verse number 8 gives us a different group of people who want to, who want to seat at your table for decision making. <coughs> Excuse me. And these are men with unbiblical philosophies. Let me give you the definition before we see it in the text. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Philosophy is defined as a belief system or a system of wisdom. So don't think so much about like a belief system like a religion, but like a this-is-how-the-world-works system, a system of wisdom. In this case, in Colossians chapter 2, it's going to be a case of worldly or human wisdom. So the way of the world, the worldview, the world system, the wisdom of the world. Uh, and these are people who should not have influence in our decision-making process. Colossians chapter 2, verse number 8 says, Beware lest any man spoil you through, there's that word, philosophy, right? This worldly belief system, this way the world works, this wisdom structure framework uh, spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of this world and not after Christ. And so these are men who have contrary wisdom to what God says is wisdom. They have a worldview that does not align with the worldview that God has assigned to all living human beings. Now, I'm not saying that lost people have nothing to teach us, right? Uh, Your doctor doesn't need to be an independent Baptist Bible memorizer to give you a prescription, okay? Uh, So there are people who might have a different set of wisdom that might apply to your life in some particular way. Uh, They can teach you about transmissions, okay? But when it comes to a worldview and a a worldview of human nature and a worldview of how the home works and a worldview of how uh, addiction works and a worldview view of how freedom and liberty works, you and I should not be coming under the influence of those who are outside of God's philosophy. Uh, I would never leave church based on the opinion of a lost coworker. Now, that's, what he's, that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about don't go to high, high school and maybe learn from a teacher who isn't a, a, you know, a believer. I do think that there's some problems with that, but uh, maybe use the example of a doctor. Don't go to a doctor unless they're a, you know independent Baptist. I don't think that's what he's saying. But when it comes to listening and taking advice and the the decision-making process, I think you'd be be a fool to use the decision-making process of a godless person to make the decision about a family matter, to make the decision about a spiritual matter, uh, to leave your church based on the opinion of a lost person. Listen, there are all manner of people out there waiting to help you undo your faith if given the chance. So don't give them the chance. Don't allow them after the rudiments of this world to spoil you. Look at verse two again. Beware lest any man spoil you. That word spoil literally means to take control over. Give me all autonomy at this decision-making seat. I'm going to take control over you. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy or an unbiblical worldview and vain deceit, just flat lies. After the traditions of, the me, of men. And that's, that's simply saying, hey, this is how men do it. This is, listen, I wouldn't go to that church if they treated me like that. Nobody would do that. That's a lost person bringing you into their bondage. After the rudiments of this world, and that's simply how the, how, the, how the system works, the rudiments, the normal reactions of the world, and not after Christ. Listen, people who hate God shouldn't be allowed a seat at the table of spiritual and life-altering decisions. That's not the place you get advice from. Uh, Excuse me. Uh, Y'all not let them have a seat at that particular decision-making table. So that brings me to the second type of people uh, that try to, or rather our third type of people that try to influence. We said number one, oppressive men. Number two, uh, men who have an unbiblical philosophy who try to spoil us. And then number three, you're going to go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. In uh, (coughs) Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy, it's the final book he wrote before he's beheaded, Paul writes this letter to warn Timothy uh, about those he allows to help him make decisions, those he allows to, or rather who he'll follow in his decision-making process. And he's going to warn him about evil men, influencing him. So we've already talked about men with the wrong philosophy. We've already talked about men with oppressive tendencies, but now Paul is going to bring us to this observation to say, hey, godless, wicked, evil men should not have a seat at the table of decision-making processes. 2 Timothy chapter number 3, verse number 13. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But, so in contrast to being deceived by these men, continue thou, Don't follow them, continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Paul's gonna say, follow me and not evil men. There's gonna be all manner of evil men who are gonna deceive and be deceived. They're gonna wax worse and worse and they're gonna try to infiltrate the church. One of the big warnings of 2 Timothy. And Paul says, don't follow those men, follow me and know the things I've taught you and be assured of those things. And this is one of those truths we'll probably assume we have the base covered, right? I'm not getting advice from evil men. There's no way. I'm not seeking advice from Satan worshipers. Not like I went to, you know, after school Satan and asked him, you know, uh, what should I do as a, as a teenager? I'm not listening to their deceit. But I think if we're not careful, we would allow them influence in less tangible ways. We allow evil men to influence us and our children through entertainment. And then a big one, through comparison. Proverbs chapter 24, verse one says this. Be not thou envious against evil men, neither desire to be with them. How does that play out? Well, sometimes we see a family member or a friend who walked away from God or who was never saved, maybe went to high school with them, maybe it's a coworker, and then we watch their perfect life unfold on Instagram or Facebook. And we see, oh man, they don't don't go to church. And look at how happy they are. Look at how well put together they are. Look at the car that they drive. Look at the house that they have. They never seem mad at each other in the millisecond photo they staged. And we end up desiring to be with them. We end up envious over uh, evil men. And I want to encourage you to be careful. It's a trap. Uh, It's not only destroying your contentment, but it's altering your future decision-making processes. I remember, and I'll try to be extremely uh, vague about this, but I remember a pastor who who messed up morally. And it wasn't very long until he was in some other industry. And man, he was driving the new car and the fancy this and the this and the that. And I was talking to a pastor friend who said, man, look what happened to so-and-so. They cheated on their wife and all this stuff happened. I said, man, you got to be real careful about that. You got to be real careful about that. You're not not actively inviting them to sit and have a conversation with you, but through Instagram or social media, you're inviting them to ruin your contentment through comparison and you're you're envying evil men and desiring to be with them. Man, I could, not even I want to cheat on my wife, but man, I could leave ministry and go do this. What a dangerous trap. And whether you realize it or not, it is influencing your decisions. Because now, when it's time to to decide, maybe should I shift career paths or should I do this? Whether you know it or not, they're at a, they're a seat at that table. Yep. Helping you be discontented and thinking, "Man, but I could have this and I could do that." We need to be very careful at who gets to sit at the table. So, who else and how else does someone try to influence our decision making that shouldn't? I would encourage you to go over to Proverbs chapter six. Oh, forgive me, Romans <laughs> chapter sixteen. I'd say number four: false teachers. False teachers we ought to be extremely careful of false teachers this should go without saying but for some reason it needs to be said it absolutely does Romans chapter <coughs> 16 I'll stop smoking by Christmas <coughs> oh man <coughs> me please I'm sorry Romans 167 Says this now, I beseech you, brethren, mark them that cause divisions and offenses. The sentence isn't done, contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned. And read the last two words, please avoid them, avoid them, avoid them. don't let them get near you, don't leave TBN on. Listen, I've I've watched like five seconds of TBN in my entire life, but if you could find a preacher worth like his weight in paper bags on TBN, I'll give you a dollar, okay? Um, I uh, don't know if they're on there. Uh, They might be. I don't know if they're on there. But you and I need to mark those that cause divisions contrary to what the Word of God has clearly taught us and avoid them. Not invite them, but avoid them. Don't let them near you, uh, let alone influence you in contrary doctrines. Don't give them your children. Don't give, them, don't give your spouse over to some heretical TV preacher. Don't let him in your house. Don't let the Mormons come by and sit with your kids because you just didn't want to say no, that they couldn't come in. Now listen, if you, as the husband or wife, want to really like grill them and go after them and try to win them to Christ, have at it. Don't leave them with your kids though. Listen, notice what it says in verse 18. For they that are such serve not the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own bellies, and by good words, notice this, but they seem so nice, pastor. They're not the first ones. And by good words and fair speeches. Listen, I have heard, I've heard a lot of preachers who are better than me, okay? The standard's not very high. But I have heard a lot of false preachers who are way better at speaking than a lot of Bible preachers. Fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. You remember what God said to do to those people? To mark them. To avoid their false teaching. Who bring doctrinal divisions uh, you and I need to be careful and mindful about who gets a seat at the decision table, not only for our family, but for our children, not only for ourselves, but for our family. Matthew says the same thing in a different way. Matthew seven fifteen says, beware of false prophets which come uh, to you in wolves' uh, sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. They look safe, though. They're fair speeches. Yeah, they look safe, and they've evidently re- deceived somebody else. That's how they ate the first sheep and then took their skin and covered themselves in it. Verse number 16 of Matthew 7, ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Do God's people have any business going over with a thorn bush trying to collect grapes? No, you don't. You know them by their fruit. Well, is their fruit a congregation of condemned false converts? Men mark that and avoid that. Verse 17, even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. I'm not playing that in my house on Saturday because there's nothing else on television. Throw your TV away. You don't have to do that, but it's just my opinion. Verse 18, a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. We cannot expect them to bring forth good fruit in our lives. So listen, if, a, if corruption follows them, if heresy is left in their wake, they should have no seat at the table of decision-making. Would you go back to 1 John? I told you to leave a ribbon there. Hopefully you did. <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to be in Revelation uh, in a little bit, but First John is where I want you to go. <clears throat> excuse me. So we've we got to keep our heart in check when it comes to making decisions. Our heart is going to have a seat at that table whether we want to or not. We just need to be mindful of it. We also need to be mindful of unqualified people having a seat at the table of decision-making. And then lastly, I'm sure you can. we've already established it, but the final influence that tries to break into our decision-making process is Satan and his deceitful, seducing spirits. They try to get in and mess everything up. At the end of all time, God describes Satan as the old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceived the whole world. That's how God describes him. The evil spirits that follow him, it says, and he was cast out of the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Those evil spirits, that principalities, that that dominion structure of Satan at the top and these evil spirits. I don't know exactly how it all works, but a third of heaven's angels became demons at the fall of Satan. And now they do his bidding, the uh, the legion that was in the man and then the different demonic possessions and so forth that we've experienced even and I've experienced before. Uh, These are the working of Satan and these seducing evil spirits. So how does it happen? How does Satan try to break into the decision-making process? Number one, through the deceit of evil spirits, not. From God. Now it sounds real obvious, but I want to show you something in 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4, verse 1, and then also verse 6. <clears throat> now you could read the whole chapter. I think you'd be better for it if you did. We will not tonight for sake of time. How does Satan mess up our decisions? Well, through evil spirits that seem like they're from God. First John 4 1 says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world, okay? So just because something seems spiritual doesn't mean it is. Just because someone seems empowered, they may very well be, but by a different spirit. Just because something seems right doesn't mean that it is. And so John is begging us, beloved, try the spirits, whether there be of God. Jump down to verse 6. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us, and he that is not of God heareth us not. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So what he is telling us is that there's going to be times where the wrong spirit brings impression upon us, and man, it feels right. But you need to discern, is that God or is that another spirit? Is that the Holy Spirit or is that another spirit? Just because there's a deep impression in your heart to make that post or to say that thing or to to make that decision, just because there's a spiritual, supernatural, outside force impressing upon you does not mean that's the Holy Spirit. Try the spirits. Try the spirits. Listen, just because there's some supernatural drawing or even justification, there's a reason you have every right, you should do it. Just because there's that doesn't mean it's of God. Just because your inner man is riled up against something doesn't mean that you're walking in the spirit. You may be walking in a spirit, but you may not be walking in the spirit. And so listen, as God's people, we need to try and learn how in the world to discern the spirits, whether they be of God or aren't they. Let me give you, and there's a lot of ways, and we won't necessarily spend a lot of time discussing it, but let me give you the the 100% infallible, never wrong way to know if it's the spirit or a spirit. Ready? The spirit never will and never has ever led against the word of God. Never, never. If a spirit inside is, in, is influencing you to do something that is contrary to the word of God, and you would be, and I don't have time, nor do I have liberty, but you would be, you wouldn't believe it if I told you the stories of people who said, no, 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 this is, this is of God. This is not of God. And how do you know that? Well, it's because I'm the pastor. No, it's not because I'm the pastor. I have the same Bible they have. And God's word is never going to lead them into lasciviousness. God's word is never going to lead them into debauchery. God's word is never going to lead them away from taking care of their own family. God's word is never going to lead you away from God, or the spirit is never going to lead you away from God's word. That's a fail-safe, 100%, always for sure, is it leading according to the word or contrary to the word. And you just need to be mindful of that. Satan will use seducing spirits to influence our decisions. Notice secondly, in 1 John chapter 2, Satan will try to draw us away by activating what's already inside of us. Um, let me let me illustrate it this way. Um, every I'll pick on the husbands, it's safer. Every husband in here knows what buttons to push to tick their wife off. Right? Nobody wants to admit that. You're all like, I, don't, I would, I just I had no idea. You know, you know what what you need to leave out or what you need to forget or what you need to say. We know how to activate what's already inside of them, right? Satan knows how to activate the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. He knows what to put and where to put it. He knows how to jig the bait and so forth. 1 John 2, 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh. Hey, that's the desires of a physical body. The lust of the eyes, the desire of that old man on the inside, the pride of life, that desire to be like God, that pride is the root of all decisions. Adultery is pride. I deserve this. I should have this. Pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And so listen, Satan and our sinful heart and our proud old nature are in partnership here against us at the table, trying to get us to mess up the decisions. And you and I need to be careful. And how in the world are we gonna, how in the world are we gonna get our, the, the world of flesh and the devil away from us? Well, we already know that trick. It's not a trick. Walk in the spirit. You'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you're walking in the spirit, Satan doesn't get a seat at that table. Listen, we need not uh, allow our desires to be first in our decision-making. We need, if our desire is to be seen, then it's the wrong desire. If our desire is some physical pleasure, then it's probably the wrong desire. If our desire is to be pleased and to be known and the pride of life, you just go through that checklist and say, hey, I'm getting ready to make a decision. Is it the lust of the flesh? Is it the lust of the eyes? Do I want something that God didn't even say I should have? Am I looking at that fruit that it's good to look upon and it's, it's enticing the inner old man? Is, it, is that what's drawing me away? Well, then hold that decision. Don't make that decision. Is it the pride of life driving a decision? You need to be careful. Satan's going to use seducing spirits. He's going to use activating what's already inside of us. And then lastly, number three, Satan is going to use the subtle way (coughs) that seems right in our own eyes. 2 Corinthians 11.3 is our last text. It says, but I fear, lest by any means as the serpent beguiled, tricked, deceived, brought her into bondage, beguiled Eve through his subtlety, carefulness, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And Paul's worried about restoring his relationship in this context. And he's saying, hey, listen, I'm, I'm worried that Satan's drawing you away. And he's, he's tricking you subtly. And, and there's people in the church who are drawing you away as well. And you don't even realize it because Satan is so careful and he's so crafty. And again, this goes back to that, 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 that warning in Proverbs sixteen twenty five, that way that seemeth right. It just feels like this is what I should do. It seems like what I should do. My counsel has given me counsel. This is what I should do. But Man, the spirit of God inside of you is saying, oh, that's not it. I would hate to ask for a show of hands, but I've certainly had godly counsel that was incorrect. Not that they were evil or, or malicious or didn't have my best intentions, but that, how's God gonna tell them what he's supposed to tell me, right? I mean, I'm the one that's supposed to go to God for myself and ask him for, my, for direction and his will on my life. And again, that's why the multitude of counselors is a safe bet. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, there's oftentimes a way that seems right, but is wrong. It's not the correct direction. And so listen, we, we are not ignorant of his devices. Uh, at, at very least, we ought, to be, we ought to be very careful because he's trying to give us a false balance and, a, and pervert our judgments at this table. And so there are many enemies to good decision-making. But as I mentioned, these enemies do not absolve personal responsibility. We are ultimately responsible to make the right decision, regardless of who's trying to influence, regardless of who we let get to the table. Uh, the fact of the matter is, it is, the Bible says in Romans 14, 11, for it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God, so that every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. So on that day, you cannot say, well, brother, so-and-so said I should do this. You'll give an account of yourself before God. You and I are responsible for our own decisions. But again, we didn't really go through how to make the right decision. We've done that before. What we did was, we just talked about who shouldn't get a seat at the table of decision-making process. So I don't know who this would apply to. I'm certain probably in, in, every, in some respect to all of us, but we all need to reevaluate who and what is at the seat of our decision-making table. Is it our, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life? Have we let some heretic into the fold? And they're, they, they look well and they, there's fair speeches and they, they've deceived other people. Uh, are we letting some, some heart decision affect or some heart desire or heart deceit affect the decisions that we're making? We maybe need tonight to clear the table and, and reevaluate who should get the seat at the table. Now, again, we didn't even talk about who should, right? We talk about godly influences and the will of God and the worth of Jesus. That's really where I wanted to go in the message. I didn't get to it. Maybe we'll say that for another time. The worth of Jesus ought to drive your decisions, right? If he says to do it, you do it, whether there's a good outcome or not. Jesus is worthy of all of your obedience. But tonight, all we tried to do is say, hey, that seat should be taken, that sh- seat should be taken, that seat should be taken and not by the people who we let sit there. So let's pray.